welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, the Kingdom of God is for the living. It's not for the dead. Jesus said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, talking to the Pharisees who were running a government at that time. They were running it through a government building called the Temple and to uh, government-operated synagogues, which is where the people gathered to operate governmental issues and deal with governmental issues in a nation called Judea. And Judea was the remnant of Israel. It was what was left of Israel that had recognized the King David years and years before as the lawful king of Judea. Now, eventually, uh, they there was a split in the kingdom. And they said, you know, a certain number of them said, you know, what is David to us? And they left the kingdom of God. They went off and did some of the things that were still part of what Moses had taught. But they weren't a part of the kingdom of God. Because, see, once you invested certain rights in the kingdom in the name of a king, which they did with Saul, then he has a responsibility to hold those rights in possession of an office, which is the office of king of Israel. So there was this king of Israel, and there was another office in that government, which was the high priest. Now, the high priest couldn't exercise authority one over the other, but he did exercise authority over the office of priesthood. There were no kings in Israel for hundreds of years, because the power of the king, the potestas of the king, the imperium of the king, was in the hands of the people. That was the original right, is that God gave you the right to rule over yourself, to to deal with matters of this earth, dress it and keep it, yourself, on an individual basis. Now, Cain went out and created a city-state. Nimrod went out and created a city-state. And he did this by having the people invest some of their power, some of their right to choose, some of their liberty into the hands of a king, ruler of some sort, whatever you want to call him, Melchizedek. And uh, this uh, ruler had power that you once had. Now you don't have it anymore. He has the power to choose for you. Nimrod could choose certain things for the people and decide certain matters for the people because there was power that had been in the hands of the people. Potestas is the Latin, or imperium also is the Latin. There are different kinds of power. And basically what it is is the right of the individual is now invested in this office. In exchange, now people don't just do that for nothing. They do it for in hope of something, and protection from Nimrod, protection from Cain, uh, social welfare, protection from poverty. You know, you could you could go to Pharaoh, you could go to Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty provider instead of God, so you could go to him, and he would collect funds from the people 
and redistribute them so that nobody just starved to death or ended up in the street if, you know, they got injured or whatever. Now, there are other ways to do this, and there were kings like Melchizedek, who was, Melchizedek means righteous king, of Salem, which is the righteous king of peace. So whoever that individual was, and most uh, historians for centuries and centuries assumed that Melchizedek was Shem, who was theoretically still alive by Bible chronology at the time of Abraham. And he was the righteous king of peace. And evidently, somehow, Abraham had been tithing to to Melchizedek. And then when he ended up in this battle with these people who were kings, and were going around conquering other city-states, you know, bludgeoning their brothers, uh, like Cain. Uh, Abraham put a stop to it. Abraham and a bunch of allies that came along with Abraham, uh, over in one night, defeated these kings, these rulers. You know, I mean, they might have been called all kinds of things. Maybe they were prime ministers, commander-in-chiefs, whatever, but we call them kings. That's the word that we use, the designate those rulers and their armies who followed them were defeated overnight by Abraham and his allies. Now, who were his allies? Was Abraham a king? Well, Abraham was king of his own castle, of his own household, and in his household he had quite a few men because he was very wealthy, and they came to fight with him. But other people who followed the ways of Abraham set up these Altars, whatever those altars were, we have this, you know, B movie view that people were piling up stones and killing sheep and setting them on fire. And we have a whole article showing that that's not really what they were doing. That's not what really made them allies. And and you kind of wonder once you begin to see and can read Hebrew, you know, read the actual meaning of the words, you start saying, oh my gosh. They weren't just piling up stones and setting sheep on fire. They actually, this was this is a way of describing a system of social welfare that took care of the needy of society and that bound society together, but not by forced offerings, but by what you see over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, free will offerings. You don't see the word charity in the Old Testament, in the King James, but you see free will offerings. So what is charity? Charity is free will offerings. Oh, my gosh. So they are talking about charity. They just don't use that word. They use a descriptive phrase. And when we talk about altars, they talk about altars and temples in the New Testament, but they talk about lively stones. But, of course, if God was the same today, we have to. you have to believe in the Pharisees' view of the Old Testament if you're going to be a modern Christian. And we know that the Pharisees had it wrong. Pharisees were, you know, like, oh, this is a Sabbath. We can't do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not what it's about. But I still have people today on our network who think, oh, no, no, you have to take the Sabbath off because it's the magic day. Of course, they don't use the word magic day. But that's that's what they're saying, that if you take that day off, then God will be pleased with you. And we, we've shown over and over again that the Sabbath 
is away. Even the word Torah. If you if you look up the word Torah, it has a, an actual meaning to it. Somebody was actually relating that the Torah and the Talmud were one and the same. They were suggesting that on the network. Well, that's that's just ignorance. But I understand where they get that ignorance from because there's a lot of people who think that the Torah and the Talmud are the same. But they're not. Now, traditionally, the Torah was the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. And those first five, we we call them the Pentateuch. And that, that Torah, that Pentateuch, those first five books, if you're going to use the word defining it as the first five books of the Bible, are, are an actual specific set of books. And each we call them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and they actually have original Hebrew words that are used to define, you know, to express what those words are all about. Genesis is kind of the beginning. And uh, Exodus is the departure. And Leviticus is pertaining to the Levites, who belonged to God. The Levites were different than all the other tribes of Israel. And again, when we use the word Levites, we think all people who were bloodline Levites. No, no, that wasn't the Levites. You you could move from tribe to tribe through kind of an adoption process. And we know that most of the people that came out of this walled-in camp that was created when they started setting up this golden calf, which most people don't understand at all, because it's it's very important for people who want to manipulate your mind with religion and control you and get you to tie to them, keep you in ignorance. So they end up with a tradition of ignorance passed down from generation to generation. The golden calf was a central bank. Very clearly, it was a central bank. I mean, all the city-states had them. You can read about it in in um, the Peloponnesian Wars and everything. They had the golden statue, and it was called the Reserve Fund. In Greek, that's what they called it. They actually cut off chunks of it from time to time and melted it down and made coins to pay the army. People protested. Why? Because that gold that they had it stored in this exposed vault, this statue, that's what the statue is. It's kind of like a vault, except for you want to audit the Fed. You just go out and look at the statue. And you say, well, it's got all its arms and legs, and so the gold's still there. But that's what it was, was it was a depository. The statues were depositories. It was practical of the wealth of this city-state. And people in the city-state were all bound together. They might have some sort of artificial money that they pass between themselves because all our gold is in the statue. And it binds the people together because if you leave the local community, if you trade outside the local community, all you got to trade with is your your artificial money. You know, your currency what you currently use as money, because all your real money, all your gold, is in the statue. And that kind of binds society together. But Moses knew that that artificial binding of society together was detrimental to the kingdom of God. He knew that you, in order to really be a band of brothers, you had to bind yourself together with something else. 
we call it faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty in the New Testament. Back then, it had to do with honor and loving your neighbor and all these kinds of things, which, of course, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus didn't invent that. He's just quoting Moses because Moses was teaching the same exact system of government, kingdom, that Jesus was preaching. Now, it didn't look like what the Pharisees were doing, but the Pharisees had twisted and unmoored the symbols of the Bible from their true meaning. Their altars had become piles of stone. Now, they they still had the, the system of social welfare that was run through what we call Corbin, which is translated treasury in the New Testament, at least one place, but is sometimes just put down as Corbin, and it actually comes from a Hebrew word that means sacrifice, uh, that also comes from another Hebrew word that means to draw near. Because sacrifice, giving up, empowering others, because that's what you do. I mean, you have some money, you, you know, I have $20, I go give it to somebody. I have empowered them to the tune of $20. They can now take that $20 and go out and spend it. I have empowered them. I took some of my power, $20 worth of it, and I gave it to somebody else. You know, they talk about love of money. It's love of power. You know, people don't want money because it's pretty. They want money because it's power. You can buy stuff with it. You can influence people with it. You can get people to do things for you for you with that money. It's power. And that's why people want it. And that love of power is the root of all evil. Which is why you do not elect kings. And you should not elect kings. Because that's a rejection of God. Because you're going to give those kings, kings who can exercise authority, ruler kings, ruler presidents, ruler prime ministers, whatever you want to call them, you're giving them power to choose for you. And that power corrupts them. Wealth can corrupt you. Too much wealth can corrupt you, make you lazy, make you selfish, make you addicted to that power so that you want more. And of course, in Samuel 8, this is what happened, is the people wanted to give the government power. They wanted to elect a king, the voice of the people. They even say, the voice of the people wanted to have a king. And God said, well, just tell them what it's going to be like when they want to have this office of power, this ruler, this king, this president, this prime minister. It doesn't really matter what you call him. If he has the power, it's an office of power. So you want one of those. This is what you're going to get. He's going to take and take and take and take and take and take and take. He's going to take the first fruits of your labor. Done deal. That already has happened. He's going to take your sons and daughters. Already happened. Your, your daughters don't work for you. Your wife doesn't even work for you. Chances are, a lot of the time, she has to go out and work for the government. And somebody was talking on the Internet about the fact that we outlawed slavery because slavery was immoral. 
Well, it was defined slavery. Involuntary servitude is actually what was outlawed. In other words, if you nobody could just grab you off the street and make you work for them. Because that would be involuntary servitude. You didn't volunteer to work for them. You didn't have that right to force them to work for you. The voluntary servitude is still very legal. And you can say, if you give me $100 today, I will work for you tomorrow. So we give you $100 today. And tomorrow, you have to work for us. And if you don't work for us, we can go grab you off the street and make you work for us. Because you volunteered to be a servant. Well, the reality is that's what you're doing Every day, your parents have been doing that every day for a hundred years in America. You've been eating at the table of men who exercise authority. Kings, rulers, presidents, congressmen, whatever you want to call them. It doesn't really matter. You've been eating at their table. Now, their table is set because they've taken money from your neighbor, and from your parents and grandparents and what have you. But they, they spend it as fast as they get it in. As a matter of fact, they spend it faster than they get it in. <laughs> Which is, they don't just take money from your neighbor and give to you. They've done that for so long now that they're taking money from your neighbor's children. Even their unborn children. And they're going to give it to you. They're going to provide you with all these benefits. Now, most people don't realize that that's a violation of the Ten Commandments to even do that, because it's not keeping the Sabbath. And keeping the Sabbath has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with taking the seventh day off on your calendar, whether it's lunar or solar, it doesn't really matter. You think you've counted up, this is the Sabbath, I'm going to rest on this day because God told me to rest, and that's keeping the Sabbath holy. Big, long explanation right there in the Ten Commandments. Keeping the Sabbath holy... What they're trying to tell you is that you got to work first and earn your rest. That's the principle. You can take the seventh day off. You can have a lunar calendar, solar calendar. You can have all these things. And in your mind, you're going to say, oh, I am justified because I am doing this because I love God. You're, not, you're deluded. God doesn't care. God's telling you a principle. You've unmoored that principle for your ritual. You're a Pharisee. And, you know, I'm not picking on you. It's fine if you want to take the seventh day off. I mean, it's not a sin to take the seventh day off. It's not a sin to use a lunar calendar. You can use a lunar calendar. If everybody in your neighborhood is using a lunar calendar, it's probably good you use a lunar calendar. If nobody else in your neighborhood is using a lunar calendar and you still want to use your lunar calendar and take the day off, and so, therefore, you can't work on that seventh day because that's jumping all over the place because it's a lunar calendar. You've divided yourself from other people. It, whatever you're doing has nothing to do with the righteousness. It has to do with what's in your mind as self-righteousness. You're absolutely fooling yourself. But if you have an aversion in your heart against being in debt, I mean, if you're going to work for... You know, if somebody's going to give you something, and I've had this many times where people wanted to give me something that I didn't feel I earned. 
I didn't feel they owed me. I've had a situation where the government wanted to give me stuff. I said, why do you want to give me that? Well, we have that free money. We can give it to you. What, what, what are you talking about? Why would you give me that? Oh, because, you know, that we're from the government and we're here to help. <laughs> I, didn't, I wouldn't take it. Didn't want it. I hadn't earned it. Just it didn't seem right. But see, people who believe in a day instead of in a way, they might take that benefit. Maybe they won't. Don't. Maybe they see that, that there's a problem. But still, it's very dangerous when you start unmooring the symbols from their meaning. What is God trying to tell you with the altars of living stone, which Abraham's altars were living stones, and Moses' altars were living stones? And we have, you know, pamphlets, and we'll have books that do address this issue and show you right in the language. Oh my gosh, there it is. You, you, the Levites don't get the kidneys. The Levites get control of your free will offering, your charity. You give it to them. You let go. You cast your bread upon the waters with no hooks in it. And hope it comes back to you because Moses was teaching the people a system of faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty in a viable republic, in the heart of a world full of sin. That's what he was teaching. And that's what Jesus was teaching. And that's what John the Baptist was teaching. If you're going around teaching people, oh, you got to take this, this day off with this calendar, you're not teaching Christ. Now, that you may be not ready to let go of that. Go ahead. You have your calendars and your special days but you better start following the special way start casting your bread upon the waters start giving now charity would it be charitable if I had a million dollars or say 32 million dollars and I went out and started food kitchens all over the country where poor people live on the streets and I started feeding all those people on the streets. If you were poor, you just come to our, our kitchens and we'll feed you. Is that charity? Is that good? Is that of God? Actually, it's not. It's not serving Christ. Because you're just weakening the poor, making them dependent upon your free bread. Put a big screen TV in there and they have free bread and circuses. That's not doing the work of God to go out there and just feed everybody. We'll tell you why. We'll show you what could be when you come back. back to keys of the kingdom so giving stuff away we, we, we need to learn to give we need to learn to empower other people 
that's what giving is, is empowering somebody else, taking some of your power and giving it to somebody else. And we do it with our children. As they grow older, we give them chores, we give them uh, gifts, and we teach them things so that, that knowledge is power. And maybe we even will help finance some of their projects. We give them clothes, we give them food, that's empowering them because uh, they're able to grow. I mean, uh, my grandkids, I can't believe how fast some of them are growing. And uh, and uh, the wonderful thing about grandkids is you get to be more of an observer when you're raising your kids, you're running around trying to, you know, provide for them and all that stuff. But as a grandparent, you get to watch them grow. And uh, and so that that's another opportunity for growing ourselves because in that observation, we can become more empowered as we see how things work. And see, the kingdom of God is an actual government. The Bible is about government. You know, Nimrod's government and God's government. You know, Babylon and the kingdom of God. These are the two opposing types of government. Nimrod was a mighty provider instead of the Lord because he forced the contributions of the people. John the Baptist said, no, do it by charity. Jesus said, no, do it by charity. Uh, Moses said, no, do it by charity. Abraham is seen doing it by charity. His offerings were gifts. And and the building of these altars were building of living altars for those people who supported Abraham and came to his aid and were able to defeat these kings overnight. And they took nothing but you know, that they were actually allowed to take, but Abraham would not take anything. But then this guy comes out, Melchizedek, who evidently had been tied to by Abraham, comes out and brings food and wine and supplies to him. You know, I heard an interesting statistic just the other day. I have a one grandson, about 10 years old, and he's absolutely fascinated with battles. He can tell you who was in battles 400 years before Christ and what battle tactics they used and what equipment they had. And he just... He just absorbs that information. And he was studying about World War One. In World War One, when they first had to go out on the battlefields and bring back the wounded, they did it with horse drawn wagons. They were ambulance wagons, but they and they would put them in the wagons and they would bring them back to uh, uh hospitals, field hospitals. And they started developing the system of triage. You know, I mean, okay, is this immediate care? Is this life-threatening? Is this, you know, or does this guy going to need to go back to a regular hospital? What do we, what do we do? But the stumbling block or the 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 cog in this system was the ambulances. They did, they couldn't keep moving. The horses wore out. They they weren't good night or day. And so they needed a mechanized ambulance system. So they they needed 2,000 ambulances and 4,000 drivers to keep those ambulances running, of course, mechanics and everything. And they got that. Now, you know how they got that World War One? Well, of course, you would imagine that the government bought them and supplied them. No, they were they were all provided by private donations from the people back there in... Great Britain. They donated money to get ambulances for their soldiers. 
most people don't understand it. You know, public schools back in 1900, you know, we had a public school nearby us. It was almost entirely built by the people. The the land was donated by the people. Uh, the teacher was housed by the people who were sending their kids to the school. She was paid by them. But then they started bringing in, well, it's a public school, so now you can get a little bit of public funds. A little bit of tax dollars went to provide something. You know, they, the, the well they drilled for the school was drilled by private funds. All this was done privately, but they call it a public school. Now, today, your public schools are entirely funded by the government and entirely controlled by the government. You don't have control over your curriculums. You don't, I mean, really, you don't even know what's in your school books. You don't even know what's in the history books that your kids are. are I can guarantee you, your children will not get a good education if they go to public school. I can guarantee it. They, Their time will be used up, time that they could be used to actually learn the truth about history, about where we're going in the future. But they're not going to learn it in public school. The teachers don't know it. They've been in this system for a century themselves. And it has steadily, steadily, steadily changed. So now these teachers think, oh, well, we're teaching the kids. You know, American values, Christian values. I just heard before the show started that, you know, some school is under fire because it put up a quote saying the purpose for the season. You know, celebration of Christ's birthday, Christmas time. Well, of course, Christ wasn't born at Christmas time, but people have used it as a point of celebration of Christ's birthday. Uh, whether Christ wants you to do that or not, that's you have to ask him. But that's what it's been for for hundreds of years. Although at first, you know, celebration of Christmas in America was illegal in <laughs> some of the some of the cities. If you got caught celebrating Christmas, you could be literally arrested and fined. Uh, they were in opposition to it, but people forget that they don't know their own history. So, but the point is, multiculturalism seems to be okay, unless, of course, you're a Christian. <laughs> and the fact is, that most of the people claiming to be Christian today are doing nothing in the way that Christ said to do it. They are doing things. Almost everything they're doing. Even the conservatives, you know, the moral majority or whatever they want to call themselves, are actually doing their day-to-day dealings with government and each other and school and all this stuff are doing it in a way that is diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ. It is actually also diametrically opposed to the Torah. Torah. So what is Torah? I mean, if you if you look up the word in the Hebrew language, you're going to find Tav at the beginning of the word Torah. And then you're going to find a Vav. And then you're going to find a Resh. And then you're going to find a He. And that that's what it is. Tav, a Vav, Resh, He. Torah. Well, Tav has to do with faith. That That's the letter for faith. If you put Tav front... That word has to do with faith. Vav is a division word or a connecting word. You know, uh, and I, I could explain more about that, but 
let's just jump on to the resh. Resh has to do with authority, ruling, choice. And hey is an emphasis. This, this is in, in, in making it important and a matter of principle. Now, the word Torah in King James Bible is always translated law. That's what it's translated into. It actually doesn't really mean law, but it's always translated law. It comes from a word which is Yad Resh He, which means to teach. And it's actually, if you if you were to really get in depth in, in your study of uh, of of the Hebrew language, even modern teachings about the Hebrew language. Now, all the letters of Hebrew words has meanings. I've said this many times. And unless you know the meanings of those letters, you may be deceived as to what that word is trying to impart to you. Words are the symbols of ideas. And in Hebrew, the letters are the symbols that compose that idea. In Greek, that's not so. In Greek, the the letters simply represent a sound. And that sound represents the way to pronounce the word. In Hebrew, that's not what they're doing. They're actually telling you the meaning of the word by spelling it out. But the, the word Torah... Actually, it, it's a it's a hiphal conjugation of the word. It means to guide or teach. From the beginning, God wanted to write His laws upon the hearts of the Israelites. When Moses came out of Egypt, he wanted to write the laws upon the hearts of the people, but their they their hearts were too hard. They they would not receive. That word. Some kind of did. But many of them didn't. They were stubborn, stiff necked. So he wrote it on stone. And that's what we have as the Ten Commandments. Now you can read those Ten Commandments. You can call them Ten Laws, but they're really guides. They're guiding, they're showing you if you're killing people, you're probably not on the path. You straight. If you're coveting your neighbor's goods, you're probably not on the path. These are guideposts showing you, hey, you're going the wrong way. We want to turn it into violations of sin and create a tally book and you put the stuff. God's a little bit more in-depth than that. You know, he doesn't have columns, checklists, and stuff like that. He sees the very heart of Because, I mean, somebody could kill somebody. And you say, well, he murdered, so now he's got a killing on his hands, so there's a blot against him. But he actually shot somebody who was about to kill 100 people. If he didn't shoot that person, 100 people would die. So he shot that guy and had his finger on the you know button to push it, blow up his vest. <laughs> and he shot his hand off or shot the thing out of his hand. And, but whatever, the guy dies. But he saved 100 people by shooting them. If he didn't shoot them, 100 people would have died. If if you could stop somebody from killing 100 people and you don't, you're complicit in their murder. Very important. So God sees all that. 
we're constantly people are trying to talk about morality. Is morality subjective or objective? Is that a morality? Is that a subjective idea or an objective idea? Well, if there's a God, morality is an objective concept. Because God knows what is moral and what is not. Morality has to do with the choice between good and evil. And that's objective. Now, your opinion of what you think God's opinion is, that's subjective. That's subjective to you. So that's very important to understand. The guidelines that he gave us, the Ten Commandments that he wrote on stone, he's trying to tell us something. It's, it's a message. It's a little clue to tell you when you're off the path, when you're not being drawn near God. We're not headed back to his kingdom, his government. And that's why he gave you Torah. That's why he gave you those guideposts. And so we see in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, that men were going out and creating governments. Nimrod, Lamech, Cain. There was the other group were not creating governments, but they were setting up altars which is actually a form of government. The church is defined today in the law dictionary as one form of government. The ministers are lively stones of an altar to receive the gifts of the people and go out and redistribute them. If you're really doing Christ's work, though, you will not just be giving to everybody because they qualify as poor. Jesus didn't just give to everybody. He looked for certain qualities and characters. Do you believe? Are you one of the faithful? Do you have oil in your lamp? You know, the, the ten virgins, you know, some of them didn't have oil in their lamp and they weren't let in. They had run out of oil. It was too late. They knocked and knocked and no, no, can't come in. No oil. These are symbols. How do you get oil? How do you get the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Receive it. You have to go out and be a doer of the word, and you get oil. If you're not a doer of the word, you do not get oil. You don't have oil, you can't come in. You should not get fed. We would be weakening you to feed you just because you're lazy. Wouldn't that just be promoting laziness? If you were selfish, squandered every bit of money you got just on yourself, neglected your family so they don't want to help you anymore, abused your family. And we go out and feed you, reward you for your sloth and abuse and neglect. Our charity is a curse if that's what we're going to do. Now, how do you know when to give and when not to give? Well, that's when you go out with the Holy Spirit. That's why you need a human factor in your ministers. But if you're going to follow the ways of God, your ministry needs to be free will offerings. If you're going to follow the ways of Cain and Nimrod and Pharaoh and Caesar, then go out and start your governments and force the offerings of your neighbor so that you can have free stuff at the expense of your neighbor. Of course, that's taking a bite out of one another, and if you do that, you will be devoured. And if you go out and elect men to offices of power because they're going to make things great again, you 
are following the pattern of Samuel 8. And they're going to take and take and take and take and take. You're going to corrupt the individuals you elect, like Saul was a great guy until they gave him all that power and that corrupted him. David was a great guy, a man of great faith. But you gave him all his power and it corrupted him. Do you think the leaders you've chosen now will not be corrupted by the power you give them? You need to take back the power, but you don't have a right to the power because you're in debt because you haven't kept the Sabbath. The principle of the Sabbath, the precept of the Sabbath, of working first and earning. Now you're in debt. You're in bondage. You're back entangled again in the elements of the world. You're not following Christ. You haven't been following Christ. Your parents haven't been following Christ. You're under a strong delusion. But you can repent now. Turn around and start going back the other way. Going back the other way is mean you have to take back responsibility. The first century church was the entire social welfare of all Christians who at that time were surrounded by governments who offered free bread, social welfare, on a daily basis to all the needy of society. The Christians wouldn't eat at that table. Because Proverbs told them this, Psalms told them this, David told us this, what should have been for your welfare has become a snare. Paul said this. But the modern church says, no, no, go ahead, eat at the table of kings. No, no, go ahead. Apply for the free education, health care, benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other. That's okay, as long as you love Jesus. But Jesus says, it is not to be that way with you. But you think you're a Christian. You think you go out and you participate in some charitable activities. You know, like food kitchens or, you know, handing out food to the poor. And then you, you sit there and you espouse... Oh, but I love Jesus, and oh, Jesus is guiding me, and I, I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm helping you get all this, because I've got this audience, because they're all, you know, of course, they're rice bowl Christians. They're all there because people are giving out stuff. And you say nice and noble things, and, and some of it may ring true in that person's heart, but the, you don't impart the Holy Spirit to them. You're, you're imparting the spirit of vanity self-righteousness because you're so self-righteous because you go out and get involved in charity your charity is weakening the poor it's not strengthening them oh you can talk about you know trying to get them jobs and stuff and the amazing thing is is you may have elements of the kingdom in what you're doing you may be not totally wicked totally weakening people maybe you are strengthening them a little bit but what are you missing? Because it's what you're missing that's keeping you from the kingdom. You know, all the letters of Torah. Torah, you know, comes from this word that means to guide, to teach. But it has that other letter at the beginning of it. The Tav, which is faith. Which is faith in God. Faith in if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So do you have faith in Jesus? Well, here, now, let's 
find out if you have faith in Jesus. I mean, what what's the check marks? If, is your faith real? Do you have works? Well, of course, we know there were there were many who came claiming to come in the name of Jesus who had all kinds of works. Yeah, all I mean, they'd done great things. They said, "Look at all the great things we've done. We cast out demons. We we helped these people. We healed people. We." We know we fed people. We did all these wonderful things. But still, Jesus says, get ye from me, I know you not. So, you know, works alone is not enough. It has to be a certain kind of works. And, and we don't always know who is really got faith in Christ and who doesn't. We have lots of checklists in the Bible. You know, people who you know, won't come together, won't work. We see the early church working as this viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire, according to historians, that was this ever-increasing government, entirely operating by faith, hope, and charity. And, of course, Constantine created a a church that was very similar to the Christian church because he didn't want to fund the charitable stuff anymore. He wanted to get them kind of jump-started. He could see that socialism has debilitated the Roman people. And so he wanted to get away from socialism, same as we we see uh Soviet Union doing the same thing, trying to get away from socialism and empowering the people. But it, it doesn't necessarily make the leaders of the Soviet Union Christian. It certainly didn't make Constantine Christian. He wasn't Christian. There's no evidence that he was Christian. There's a lot of evidence he was not Christian. He never would get baptized. I mean, they they finally supposedly baptized him on his deathbed, but most people, according to the the records, said he was already dead before they somebody came in and involuntarily baptized him. <laughs> so, but it, but he was creating a church, and. He donated millions and millions of dollars. We have a whole list of things, property and gold and silver and everything that he gave to the church that he was creating. And uh, he commanded that everybody in Milan get baptized. But he didn't really say repent and get baptized because repenting is a changing of the mind. They did start free will offerings, and that does have an effect. They did start taking care of their own poor instead of all through government. But they were jump-started by a huge government subsidy. And probably other subsidies along the way. And we know that those subsidies were still existing uh, well up into the time of uh, Napoleon era and uh, Josephine and her brother, who was uh, king over there in the Austrian Empire. And he was the one who first said, marriage is not going to be a matter of the church anymore. It's going to be a civil marriage. And he outlawed marriage to the church alone it had to make it a civil contract and that was a huge deal and of course did he have the power to even do that well he claimed the power to do that and he withdrew funds from the church if they didn't go along with it so that church at that time started going along with it there was certainly for centuries there were all kinds of cases where people did not go get the civil marriage they only went and got the ecclesiastical marriage and in ecclesiastical law the church is not a party to your union the contract to marry is between you and your spouse and your spouse and you 
and their family may be involved in the contract because there may be dower and a few other things like that. But you made the contract. Now, have you had a dispute later because property began to be owned not by the people but by the government? And you had a dispute over the property. You'd have to go back to the government and resolve your contract. And there were a variety of courts around to do that. But that is the kingdom. That's getting away from the kingdom. We're going to talk more about this when we come back. Bring it all in. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so what is that kingdom? Like I said, Jesus was going to take it away from the Pharisees. Told his little flock, I'm going to appoint unto you a kingdom. He later appoints unto them that kingdom, states it right out, I appoint unto you the kingdom. But he says, you're not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles, the other nation, the princes of the other nation. So they're princes and they're rulers, but not like rulers of the other nation. What do the other nations do? They rule one over the other. They exercise authority one over the other. They force the contributions of the people. And... That's what Saul did, and that was called foolish. That's why his kingdom wasn't going to last. And any government that forces the contributions of the people to take care of the needy of society is doomed. It will not be great. Any greater than Nimrod was great. It is doomed to destruction. So what was this government, this kingdom of God that he appointed to the apostles? It was a government. The people like to say, oh, but it wasn't secular. His kingdom was not of this world. And we show that the word there meant constitutional order and system of government, and he only said that to Pontius Pilate. He was trying to sit in the judgment seat, and he was saying, you ain't got no jurisdiction because our kingdom's not of your world, of your constitutional order or system or government, and of your courts. You can't sit in judgment of us. And he says, oh, my gosh, you're right. He probably said a lot more, but that's what we have recorded because they're putting it together in a book that's handwritten. And basically, it's very clear with the washing of the hands that he's saying, hey, this, you know, Jesus said, thou sayest I'm a king. So he's already agreed that Jesus is a king. And he says, what jurisdiction do you have to sit in judgment of me? Because my kingdom's not of your world. I'm not a part of the Roman Empire. 
you were invited in by Aristobulus, but you guys realized that Aristobulus wasn't the rightful king, so that invitation didn't count anymore. You tried to help Hyrcanus, but Hyrcanus would not receive help from you. But the Pharisees asked help from you, and so therefore you sent your troops into the temple. Now, you were very careful and respectful of of the traditions of the temple, and you, you, you required that your soldiers wash, literally get baptized in the laver before they entered the temple. And when they were in the, the temple, they didn't actually kill anybody. They just marched in, and the Pharisees, or, you know, the guys who were occupying the temple, which wasn't the Pharisees, but supporters of Aristobulus, fled out another way. And Rome kept the presence there because it built harbors and roads and, and was good for business. They they had big, huge freight ships. They were coming in and getting goods. And, and uh, this was a great harbor that they had. So then they would take stuff back to Rome. And they'd bring stuff there and sell. So that that's what they were. I mean, Pontius Pilate was the chief financial officer of the interests of the Roman Empire there. And they had been invited in, even though not legally had a right to be there to defend that. But other things had been taking place, revenue sharing. Uh, Augustus Caesar was sending funds for free bread to be distributed amongst uh, Judeans on a regular basis. He actually has a law where he says that if our day for delivering and distributing free bread falls on a Jewish holiday in Judea or anywhere else in the empire... They can come on another day and get their free bread. So they had big bread lines. And these people were showing up, yeah, we're poor, give us some of that free bread. Well, now you can't just kick Rome out. Rome has a vested interest. It's been feeding you for years. It's been providing social welfare. And, of course, what should have been for your welfare was a snare. David said that hundreds and hundreds of years before, and Paul quotes it again. So this is why the Christians did not depend on the social welfare of Rome, did not depend on the social welfare of the Pharisees or Herod. Christians had their own, and they actually ran it through the temple, because we see right there in the text that they worked daily in the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house in one accord. In one accord, in a system of charity that was providing a government system that for most people at that time in Rome was provided by the secular government. What they were, that that providing of welfare was called religion. Because religion was defined as the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And that's what Augustus said, I have a duty to take care of my fellow man. And Augustus was actually funding the welfare in Rome at one time. Augustus Caesar, who was really named Octavius, was funding the welfare system out of his own pocket to the tune of 50% of the bread that was given away came out of the pocket. Not of the people, the pocket of Augustus Caesar. Amazing. So, you know, what, what's the president of the United States now is Obama. Do you think that half the welfare is coming out of his pocket? 
or when Jimmy Carter was in or when Bill Clinton was in or or whoever, you know, Trudeau in Canada or whoever. It doesn't come out of their pocket. They're taking a bite out of your neighbor at the neighbor's expense. And you go read about Polybius, because we quote Polybius on a regular basis. This is going to turn your nation into a nation of beasties. You're going to take the mark of the beast and you're not even going to know it. Because you're a beastie. You don't mind taking from your neighbor, forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You think that's okay. It's just absolutely amazing. But the church was an alternative. It was a different altar of lively stones who would receive... Now, you still have the power because you all the offerings that they depend upon are free will offerings. But the free will offerings are not so that your minister can live in a $400 million house. Or what was it? $4 million. $4 million house. I mean, some of the ministers are worth $400 million. But a $4 million house. Or two million dollar depend. I I could name these ministers. You know, they fly around in jets and everything like that. Jesus is riding on a donkey, but they're in a jet. This is ridiculous. And they say they represent. Jesus was rich. He could have gone around in golden chariots. You know, that's why I wrote that whole article. Was Jesus rich? Because it's very clear that Jesus came from one of the wealthiest families. In uh, in the Roman Empire, much less in Judea. I mean, uh, Simon the leper was what we know as Simon the leper. His name isn't Simon the leper, but anyway, uh, that's what we call him. In uh, because of the translation, it's actually Simon the jar maker. But anyway, the uh, because he was a purveyor of oil oils, and he was one of the richest men mentioned in other texts, even in the Talmud. Extremely rich people. Uh, Joseph Arimathea, extremely rich individual. And that's that's Jesus' uncle. But Jesus made himself poor. Though he was rich, he made himself poor. People just disregard that. Oh, no, he doesn't really mean rich, rich. No, he does mean rich. That's what they said. You were interpreting it that he wasn't rich because people have been using... The idea that Jesus was poor to make everybody feel okay about being poor. Jesus was poor. Humble beginnings. You can be humble and rich. (laughs) You can be. Most of them aren't. It's hard. But that's all the more reason why Jesus was rich. He didn't take the easy way to become righteous. He took the hard way. The hard way to become righteous is to be rich. (laughs) And he points that out. It's hard for a rich man (laughs) Find the kingdom of God. Now, somebody was trying to say that, oh, no, no, Jesus rules from heaven. There's no kingdom of God. There's no secular government of God on earth. And he quotes one place where it talks about him ruling from heaven. But he he appointed the kingdom to people here on earth. Said the kingdom was for the living. And he always, he was just following the the kingdom of heaven was within you. It's got to be in your heart and in your mind, and therefore it will come out in your hands. But who's ruling? He's ruling your heart and your mind from heaven. He's still the king. There is another king, one Jesus. The church is a secular government. Now, you can look at, actually, we, we put up an article just 
you know, secular government article. And we talk, you know, I quote from uh, a guy, Phil Zuckerman, who's a PhD, who wrote, what does secular mean? He has a whole article. What does secular mean? He states, it means being non-religious. But what does that mean? You know, and then he talks about, you know, what what is religious? What is non-religious? What does secular mean? And and it's difficult to understand. Secular, I mean, it, it comes from, you know, Latin and Greek words. And uh, it can mean a lot of different things. But secular governments now are in the business of taking care of the social welfare of people, the social welfare of society. But to Christians, that was not done by what we call secular government. It was done by the church. So that was a part of religion because that's the fulfillment of your duty to God and your fellow man. And that's, you know, the fact is the Amish, like I say, I point this out all the time, that they they at least do some of what Jesus Christ said. They, they've kept a lot of old ways and stuff. And by default, they do some of what Jesus Christ said. And that's the thing is you're going to need to put on the whole armor of God. You're not going to be able to just say some nice things and talk about forgiveness and and go out and feed the poor now and then, you're actually got to put on the full armor of God, which is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all things. And, you know, this is where you got to go. This is what you got to do. The, the feeding of the needy of your society, the healing of the needy of your society, the participating in the education and so the health educational welfare is done through the church. Because you can't take these free benefits from men who exercise authority because then you're not doing what Jesus said. You have to you have to do it entirely through free will offerings, through what we call charity in the New Testament, which is a word that if Jesus says it it's translated love. But if Paul says it, it's translated charity. I mean, even the word grace comes from the Greek word charis. And it says, what grace have you if you only love those who love you? What charis do you have if you only love those who love you? And that's what Christians would do. They they love you know, the people in Galatia loved the people in Corinth. They actually sent money by way of Paul all the way to Corinth to help Corinth out. And that in Galatia, that was one of the poorer poor churches. And they're the ones that needed help earlier. But now Corinth was having trouble. And we actually see Paul talking to the treasurer of Corinth, uh, telling them, you know, you ought to do it this way, through free will offerings. And that's actually what Constantine started to do with his church, Constantine's church. He started to get them, he jump-started them, but he started to get the people to do free will offerings to help one another. But Constantine's church did not put on the full armor of God. It did start using charity to take care of its needy of society, but it didn't necessarily take care of its needy of society based on moral criteria. You know, we we have a whole show on the Australian social welfare system, how it progressed. Originally, it was done all through private, charitable, 
institutions, mostly the church. And then it moved from that, slowly got involved where the government started giving funds to charity. And then they began to take over the charitable institutions. And then by 1960, they removed moral criteria for charity. You get children out of wedlock, you get paid. And it's gone so far in Australia that a person who receives social welfare, such as Social Security, which is, you know, they have a little bit different name for it over there, they actually get less money after working their entire life paying taxes into Australian funds. They get less money than some boat person who just comes over and gets on welfare. It's that, that, this is astounding, that, but that's the way it's worked out. And that's actually what's beginning to happen here in the United States. You can make more money on welfare than you can working. If you, you know, the right combination of things, and we've talked about that before. But it's because they're not really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So therefore, you're going to see more and more unrighteousness in their systems of social welfare, of health, of education. Education is amazing because, like I said, they don't teach history anymore. They teach a a filtered history because they're teaching you to be a part of a socialist state. And that's why you go out and you, you, you condemn the millennialists. But you created the millennialists because you were slothful. You've lost an entire generation of people. They're not coming back. You'll have to kill half of them before they'll start waking up. Or, I mean, you don't have to actually kill them, but let them die, starvation, what have you, rioting in the streets. They have no idea. But you've created that because you went to men who exercise authority. You put your kids in public school thinking, oh, well, I can still teach them values. They're teaching them. I mean, they don't even know what they're doing. I mean, some of these teachers may be nice people. But they've already been brainwashed. They don't know any better. And I can guarantee you a lot of them are not. They have a tremendous socialist agenda. And socialism is not what Christ was all about. I mean, you actually have people today, people claiming to be Christians, saying that Jesus was a socialist. But Jesus said, do it out of love for one another, free will offerings, not like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other, which is the same thing Polybius said, Plutarch said, all kinds of philosophers and teachers and historians of the time said, you don't get it. The kingdom of God is a secular government, doing providing secular benefits, fulfilling secular needs. Now, the church we see out there in the world today, they have a certain token charity. They always like to have some mission somewhere off in some poor country. It's always cheaper to, you know, you can go down there and build a hospital for, half, you know, for the cost of building a garage up here. And so it looks real good on your tally sheet, but you're actually a worker of iniquity because the value of of helping other people, I mean really helping them, not just giving stuff away, not just giving away free meals, which we talked about earlier, 
the giving in a way in which it strengthens people is to teach people how to help one another and to seek that kingdom. Because then, when you soften their hearts by doing it in a righteous way, in a righteous spirit, they begin to wake up and they begin to see things they could not see before. That's why homeschooling is so important. And you can get together in homeschool clubs and you can get together and meet in certain places and 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 have that interaction. You don't all have to be, you know, locked away in your bedroom in your pajamas studying. But everybody should be promoting that. Home health. I mean there are solutions to everything from cancer to gallbladder to what have you that are cost you absolutely nothing and are much more effective than what happens when you go to the doctor. I'm not saying don't go to the doctor, but learn to take care of one another. Change your diet. Change your ways. Change your thinking. Start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we had a number of new pages. So we had that secular government page that went up, and we're still working on that. I've added to the page on love. And why Socialism, that's a fairly new page that we have up. And it's dealing with an article by the same name that was written by Albert Einstein, who thought that we needed to have socialism. It was the only way to deal with the problems, but he didn't have all the facts. And he came to some incorrect conclusions. And we talk about that. We have an audio now that's on that uh, page that you can download, you know, click on for free and read the article and see what he was missing. And you could become smarter than Albert Einstein because he didn't have all the information. Uh, started a page on tables. Tables. Jesus was tipping over tables. The same word for tables is the same word for bank. He wasn't tipping over tables. He was turning over the treasury, the bank, the gastaphone, to a different group other than the money changers. He's going to turn it over to new porters of the temple. But he wasn't going to appoint them cold. I mean, right now we have a new president in the United States. You have a new president in the United States. And he's out picking new appointees. He's got over 4,000 appointees he's going to make. He's going to pick them. He's going to tell you who's going to be in charge of this, who's going to be in charge of that, who's going to be in charge of this part of the government, who's going to be in charge of that part of the government. And, of course, there's a lot of people who want to, you know, there's a lot of people who predicted that he would never get to the presidency. He would never be president. They didn't say he wasn't going to be elected. They said he wasn't going to be president. So, anyway, we'll see what the future holds for you who are putting your faith in somebody who's supposed to make you great, like Nimrod. Is it going to work? It never worked in the past. It ends up weakening the people. But anyway, the in the kingdom of God, Jesus would not appoint the new people who would be in charge of those tables. He would not put his people in charge of that. He said that it's not his to give. It's It's God's to give. How does God give it? Through the hearts and minds of the people. The wicked people are going to choose wicked leaders. And usually that's what you're trying to elect in most of your countries is you're trying to pick the lesser of two evils. (laughs) But uh, in the kingdom of God, you pick your leaders. What's he supposed to, is he supposed to rule over you? No, he's supposed to serve you. 
So you pick your public servants in a secular government called the church. That is another form of government. The power of choice is in your hands. And the only thing he has power to choose over is what you freely give him. That is the only free government available to you in the world today. And you need to wholeheartedly seek that kingdom of God where the power of choice is in your hands and the only power your leaders have is the power over what you choose to give them. And you don't give it to some central leader. You give it to individuals who are your ministers and then he passes it up to the minister of his choice. We've had some divisions here in the network where some people wanted to go what we call his church. And some people had certain ideas. And uh, other people couldn't go along with them. Like me, I couldn't go along with some of those ideas. I said, well, you know, I can't recognize you as a minister. And some people went out and followed them. And they have every right to do that. And God will be judged. But I have to remain faithful to what God is leading me. And if you want to support that, you can support that. But I don't ask you to send me money, although you may. It depends on what God's telling you. I I have no authority over that. But what I try and encourage you to do is create local congregations. And most of our local congregations are very spread out. I mean, it might be we have one in Texas. And some of the people that are in that congregation don't even live in Texas. But that's the closest minister to them, so they pick that minister. But if you want to build that network so that your local congregation is only on your block. You have to find more people. And the fact is, most people don't see this. They don't see the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. You just have to repent and start thinking a different way. On Pentecost, all those people who got the baptism of the apostles were cast out of a welfare system that exercised authority one over the other and entered into a welfare system that operated by faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty. They began in a learning curve operation. This had already been started several hundred years before. We see it started before Christ's ministry by John the Baptist, saying if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meats. Do the same in funds. Do the same in everything. Do it by charity. That's what all he was saying. That's seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To seek to do all the social welfare of your society by charity. You're a long ways from that. But the longest journey begins with the first step. Gather together. Even though you're spread out, gather together. And you actually have an advantage because you have to love people that are 500 miles away sometimes. You have to contribute to the welfare of people that can't run to your assistance immediately. If you only want to gather in congregations where you all get together and rub each other's back, scratch each other's back, pet behind your ears, tickle your ears, you don't have the Spirit of Christ. Christ came to save, came that you might be saved. Everybody might be saved. He knows everybody is not going to be saved, and that's what there's always asked. Is it the many? Or the few. He wouldn't even answer that. He said, strive. Modern church says, yo, you don't have to do anything. Just think a thought and you're saved. 
Jesus said, strive. Jesus said, seek. Jesus said, persevere. Jesus said, pick up your cross. Jesus said, keep the commandments. If you love me, keep the commandments. Stop coveting your neighbor's goods. Stop seeking benefits from men who exercise authority. Stop making the state your father. Start seeking that kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's where you got to go. That's what you got to do. Yeah, I've added uh, about six or seven videos um, uh, in our uh, section on money, and it gives you an idea of that. It's very clear that the money system in the world today is going to fail. If that fails, your welfare system is going to fail. It's very clear from history that Rome decayed and collapsed. It's very clear that we are following the pattern of Rome. And we have articles, recordings, videos that explain this in detail. Now the question is, what are you going to do? Another new page I put up, We and Us. I, I should probably add more to that. But when Paul talks about we and us, is he talking about you? I don't think so. You ain't doing anything We'll be right back. So let's kind of sum this all up and the fact that uh, Jesus Christ, the, first we'll start with the Bible. The Bible is about government. It's about the governments of Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, the evil Pharaoh, uh, Caesar, and the government of God, which is from generation to generation. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And the kingdom of God depends upon the Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts and minds of people. In order for the hearts and minds of people to be filled with the Spirit of God, they must repent. They must turn around. They must think differently. And you can't even figure out what you're supposed to think. You have to let God in, and he will show you what to think. He is your guidepost. He has to write his laws, his precepts, his ways upon your heart and upon your mind. It isn't about ritualistically passing through some sort of uh, indoctrination where you do things a certain way only, wear a certain kind of clothes, you know, put a you know fringe on, and all this. So all those things are symbols, and when you start focusing on the symbol instead of what the symbol represents, you are being pulled away from the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is within your heart and your mind. It isn't within the rituals that you perform on the outside. The Pharisees tried this. Lots of generations of people have tried this, and it doesn't work. And the fact is is that we we dabble in both. All, every one of us do to some degree. We're all creatures of habit. And we need to become creatures of the Spirit. And the, And that is putting on the whole armor of God. So, if we go back to Jesus was proclaimed, uh, I mean, he was, when he was born, you know, kings knew he was king. 
Shepherds knew he was king. Angels knew he was king. When he began his ministry, he began to be a minister of John the Baptist. That's why John he went and got baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, this is the one who is to come after me. In other words, take my place. John the Baptist was acting as the high priest of the faithful. He had removed the laver from the corrupted temple of Herod that was built by tax dollars. And now the laver was the Jordan River. He is returning to the precepts of the church in the wilderness to do everything by faith, hope, and charity and where the ministers were living altars of stone. He knew this. The Essenes knew this. The Pharisees did not. The Essenes didn't have anything to do with the animal sacrifice in the temple. I mean, they had Passover and stuff, but that's a meal. They didn't, because they knew that the Pharisees' interpretation, even through the Septuagint, of the Torah was a fiction and a fraud. And we've begun to show you in our articles on sophistry how that works, in the book, That Kingdom Come, how that works. How they took these words and altered the principles into mindless rituals. And so we know that Sabbath is a way. We know that... uh, Free will offerings is charity, and that's what we should depend upon. We know that to depend upon the welfare of men who exercise authority is a snare and a trap, and according to Samuel, foolishness, and according to Jesus Christ, not to be that way with you. Over and over again, they tell you this, from Old Testament to New Testament, And that the kingdom of God was a secular government, but it did not exercise authority one over the other. That it was dependent upon free will offerings. But Jesus appointed that kingdom that he took from the Pharisees. And how did he take it? He convicted them out of their own mouth. Out of their own mouth, and he records it in the Bible, to the apostles. They said they had no king but Caesar. And we know that Jesus was the highest son of David. We know he's called the Christ, which means anointed, which it means in Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah. So he was the king, the highest son of David. He's seen in the royal treasury, specifically it says right there in the Bible, that he's in the royal treasury talking to the ministers of the royal treasury, public servants of the royal treasury, instructing them. Telling them, you know, this is how this should work. Why? Because he's king. His ambassadors, apostles, that he appoints, go out and preach the same kingdom at Pentecost. And on Pentecost, thousands, thousands of Jews accepted Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Messiah, as the king of their, there is another king, one Jesus. They accepted him. Jews accepted Jesus. You don't have to wait. Thousands of Jews accepted Jesus and eventually became known as Christians, followers of the Christ. They were called idiots because of the word idiotis meant not registered. Not registered with who? With the world, with the constitutional order and system of Rome. They weren't going to get the free bread of Rome, and people called them idiots, idiotes, non-registered, because they would not apply for those benefits. And they were persecuted for that. 
they were hated for that. They were called atheists because they would not sign up for the free welfare of Rome. People today would think you're crazy if you don't sign up for Social Security. You don't sign up for free education. Don't sign up for welfare. Don't sign up for Medicare, Medicaid. They think you're an idiot. And you are an idiot. Because you're not, in the sense that it was originally meant, idiotis, the Greek word. You're not registered. Now, I can't tell you not to register because you're in debt. You're in debt to the system. You're in bondage. You're entangled again in the elements of the world in the constitutional order and system of Rome or the United States or Australia or Canada. You're in debt. You've gone back into bondage. As was predicted, you've become merchandise. I cannot set you free. Now, if you want to come out naked like the Levites and become a minister, we can show you how to do that. But you better come out with the intention of working like the apostles worked. They didn't work four hours a day. They worked all day. They were hard-working men. Now, why do you think Jesus is picking his apostles from working men with families? Because they understand the commitment of time and energy. But he couldn't get all the people out yet. But of course, now he was becoming king of Judea. He got them all out of Judea. And eventually, others started coming out of Rome and Greece and everything. And they were persecuted. But they began to thrive, too. Because God began to enter in their hearts and show them things that you cannot see. I could tell you all kinds of things you can't see. I mean, it's obvious that the government's going to collapse and the economy's going to collapse. And there's going to be war. And there's going to be earthquakes. And there's going to be tsunamis and there's going to be all these disasters they always are going to be there and they may get very intense in the days to come but i don't want you coming together out of fear of that i want you coming together out of what christ said if you don't come together in love which is the name of christ it's not going to do you any good but this is what jesus was preaching in actual government that did not exercise authority instead of taxes they had tithes it was a voluntary system where you had to love not only the people in your congregation, but the people in the next congregation and congregations so far away you may never ever even meet them. Early Christians did this. And on Pentecost, thousands of Jews accepted Jesus Christ, got the baptism of Jesus Christ, left the system. They opted out of the social welfare system of Herod and the Pharisees which really ticked them off because a lot of these people were big earners and therefore now they they didn't have to pay into that system. They would now pay into the Christian system. And this is why you find the apostles in one accord in the government building of the temple receiving their free will offerings and taking care of business. Business not got neglected. So Peter said... Look out amongst yourself, pick men you trust, and they pick seven men. We have an article on that. What were these seven men? The seven men show up over and over again in history. I always wondered, why seven men? Why why not ten? Because the pattern was ten, but they picked seven men. I mean, there's so many. I could do I could do a whole day's worth of programs just on those seven men. Why seven men? What were they doing? What did they do in Ephesus? What did the seven men in Ephesus do that got them persecuted years later? What could you do today that involves seven men? 
Well, you got to turn around and start thinking that the kingdom is a kingdom. It's another form of government based on faith, open charity, and that perfect law of liberty. Unfortunately, modern Christians don't get that. They think they're, they can save themselves with a thought. They think they believe in Jesus and they are automatically saved. Yet Jesus said many will say that and they're actually workers of iniquity. If you're not working for Christ, you're working against him. You may not be doing it with us, but you're if you're not working for the kingdom of God and, and, and the righteousness of Christ and helping other people seek that, self-righteousness ain't going to cut it. Modern Christians practice a religion, but it's a redefined religion. Early Christians practice pure religion, unspotted by the world. They did not depend on any of the government welfare systems. Of the world. Modern Christians depended on civil benefactors. Early Christians provided all their social wealth. All. That's how you get the full armor. Is you got to do it all. You don't have to start doing it all. But you have to start doing something. You have to start coming together. Start preaching the gospel. Be this other form of government. Be the government you want the world to follow. The world will not follow you, but some will. Support your local ministers and help us get the word out that the kingdom of God is at hand within your reach. You just have to turn around from your covetous thinking and start becoming a righteous people. Modern Christians think that they are forgiven because they say they love Jesus. But Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, neither will you be forgiven. So, you say the government owes you because you paid in all these years. They owe you free education. They owe you Social Security. They owe you health care. They owe you benefits. But they're broke. They squandered the money. Don't be mad at them. Forgive them. Now, what are you going to do? Because you can't go to them. You've forgiven them. You can't go to them and ask for these benefits. You have to come together and start taking back your responsibility of providing pure religion to one another. Now, of course, you don't, you can't afford to do that for everybody, but you can do that for everybody who really is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. People who really come together and want to contribute, want to give, freely give. Not just to your congregation, but to other congregations. Every time your congregation gathers, you should be giving a tithe of some form or another. In services, money, I don't care. And that should, and if your congregation doesn't need it, it should go out to others. And to tell you the truth, our ministers don't know how to do that yet, at least very well, but they're starting to learn. You don't just give to everybody who has a need. You give to everybody who comes and say, we have a need. And say their prayer. We need this. We need this. We need help here. We can take care of this, but we if I could just get a little help here, I could make this happen better. We don't want you going out and borrowing money to pay a medical bill and incurring. 
we we teach people how to negotiate their medical bills, their dental bills, whatever, and get the best treatment. Sometimes you don't want the medical treatment that is offered. Sometimes you need it. You know, education. We will help you with your educating your children and your grandchildren. But you got to put in the overtime too. We can't be the only one putting in the overtime. There's only so much overtime. Modern Christians think that they do not need to do anything like Abraham and Moses and others. And yet they claim they have faith. But Abraham and Moses were in agreement with Christ. You just don't know what they were doing. Uh, And so you have to start getting together to do what is right and what is righteous. Uh, This is the way of the kingdom. Uh, There is no other way. It is the way of Christ. There is no other way. And you have to learn to follow that way. This, this is this is just the way it works in the kingdom of God. Modern Christians make men of the earth their father. They don't necessarily call them their father, but they do it, and that's why you got parents patria. We have whole articles on this. We have recordings on this. Show you. They look to men who exercise authority to provide them with benefits. They don't take care of their parents. They don't understand that the Corbin of the Pharisees was identical to the system of Social Security that we now have today. And the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the Word of God to none effect. They say they're Christians, but they're entirely dependent upon that system of benefactors who exercise authority. You cannot be both. You're not real Christians. You're modern Christians. You don't have a common communion, except you have a communion with these fathers of the earth. You don't have a communion with that is based on faith, hope, and charity. You have a communion that is based on force and debt, which is anti-Sabbath. You could change, and you could be changed, but you have to come to the wilderness of Christ, like the the Levites were the church in the wilderness. You have to, I mean, Jesus was was taking people out into the country and preaching to them. You know, the the whole loaves and fishes thing took place probably at Feast of Tabernacles, which is why they were all out there in the wilderness. And they seemed to be running out of bread. There wasn't enough food for everybody. There wasn't enough for the apostles. And they needed to go get more. They weren't talking about going and buying more for everybody that's there. They're talking about just them. I mean, there was there was probably 70 to 120 ministers there at this big festival out there in the desert, which was probably the Feast of the Tabernacle. And they were almost out of food. But the Feast of the Tabernacle was about sharing. It was also about coming together and establishing 
the government of God, which moved from generation to generation and operated by free will offerings and not by taxes. Because that's the only way you're going to have a system where you actually become free. And you're not going to become free if you don't gather together with the character of Christ. Because you have to care about your neighbor's rights as much as you care about your own. If you only care about your rights, if you only care about your needs and the needs of your little local congregation, you're not thinking kingdom. And in the days to come, if you're not thinking kingdom, you're not going to make it. You need to repent. You need to think, I'm going to seek the kingdom of God, not just some little religious group. Now, what what you think about God, you know, is there reincarnation? Is, uh, is the lunar calendar more important than the solar calendar? And we've explained all this. Lunar calendar was for festivals because they wanted to have the festivals on a full, full moon. And it was a way that everybody could keep track of exactly when it was because you could look up in the sky and say, oh, the festival is going to be in five days because we're going to have a full moon in five days. And so they did that. When they navigated, they didn't use the lunar calendar. You know, when they're thinking of the seasons to plant, they weren't necessarily using the lunar calendar alone, although there is something to planting seeds at certain times based on the location of the moon. But it's seasonal. And so a solar calendar is important. That's why there had to be all these adjustments that you had to make with lunar calendars. They used them all. But there was a practical reason why they were using them all. Religion is a practical thing. Religion is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. If you're not providing your duty to your fellow man through faith, hope, and charity, you don't know Jesus Christ. You're not coming together in the name of Christ, and your mind will not be filled with the wisdom of Christ. You will be self-righteous, probably. You'll have to be, because you don't have real righteousness. Modern Christians think it's okay to covet the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other. Christians knew that was absolutely forbidden. Early Christians knew that was absolutely forbidden, and they didn't do that. They would even die rather than do that. Modern Christians think that the kingdom of God was postponed instead of appointed to the apostles. But there we see in the text, he said, I appoint unto you a kingdom. There we see in the text at Pentecost, thousands of Jews accepted Jesus and said there is another king, one Jesus and contributed to that kingdom through the government temple until they were finally cast out during the destruction of Jerusalem. And we see reports of them coming out. We don't know they're Christians, but we know that many, many people, thousands of people came out of Jerusalem when it was surrounded by Titus's army, and they came out singing, and they got free passage through the lines, And they went where? They went in a network that spread all over the Roman Empire. You live in Denver? What happens if you have to leave Denver? I just heard that police are collecting blankets from the homeless in Denver. Well, man, the homeless in Denver are sleeping on the streets without blankets. They're going to be dead. They're going to freeze to death. But all of Denver will freeze to death if you lose power. (laughs) Because there won't be any heat in the houses. There won't be any food in the larder. 
I mean, you know how quickly you could go to starvation in this world, this day and age? I mean, people talk about global weather change, and there is absolutely no reserve of food in the United States worth spitting at. We used to have six, seven years' supply of grain on hand in the United States. We don't have a fraction of that anymore. And you, 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 your stores could empty out overnight. No food whatsoever. So now am I telling you to stock up on food so that your family will be saved? No. Stock up on righteousness. And that may include stocking up a little food, but what really stock up by creating relationships with people that are willing to now in these good times start caring about one another. The widow's might save the widow. I mean, we see that over and over. We see it in the Old Testament with Elijah. Uh, we see it in the New Testament with Jesus talking about the widow who, who gave more than the rich man. It's a spirit of, of taking whatever little power you have and being willing to empower somebody else. I'm, I, all I want to do is give other ministers an opportunity to serve, and they should be wanting to give the people an opportunity to serve one another. That's what the church is supposed to be doing, is facilitating people to serve one another. Not just feeding every little poor person on the side of the road. Poor, you will always have poor people you can help out. That You will never run out of poor people. But you, what's helping them? The gospel, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. If people will seek that, they will be helped out. Now, occasionally you have to feed them so that they can stick around long enough to do that. But you don't keep feeding them. Feed them the truth. It often appears as you feed them. Build it. Feast on your house. May God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.